So let us begin. We officially feel like we're officially going to get into chapter one of Revelation after a few conversations here and there. And I figured I'd still start with us just if there's anything left over from the last couple of weeks that we've talked about. We've talked about things that have to do with almost before you approach the book, things to do with how we understand the cross, promises to uh, an ethnic people group such as Israel, and how, how does the cross relate to that? Does it continue those promises? Did Jesus fulfill them in some way? Were promises made to Israel paused? And I, what I was trying to do is just get you to see the uh, distinction between two different at least two basic ways of viewing things of this nature, and that is that Jesus coming, and does he complete and fulfill the expectations of the people at the time, or is there enough discontinuity that what he does by starting the church, a significantly different, different program? That was the main gist of the last couple of weeks that we've talked about. So I just figured, do we need to talk about that a little bit more? If so, that's great. We should definitely do that. Any other comment or question about that? Okay, well, I'll take that as a, as a maybe. I won't take that as a definite no. Yeah. I'll take that as I'm not sure if I should ask this question at this moment. So we are going to start looking at the first chapter here. And I put up, just have two different translations, NIV and the one I've been using, ESV. They both, they both represent just two different ways of translating, but also there'll be some small details. It's mostly the same, but there'll be small details here that we'll look at talk about if if we get to this hopefully hopefully we will so even before arriving at this book one more comment about the book itself and that is that when you're reading it um, it's hard to pinpoint exactly what kind of book this is the book of Revelation meaning is this a history book is this a po poetry book is this a dream book full of dreams and visions it is it a letter it's, it's a confusing thing to, to kind of nail down, and that's part of the difficulty in interpreting it, is we don't, if you don't define precisely what kind of book it is, then it's hard, it's hard to understand it, because you don't know how things are being communicated to you. So one thing I'd like to propose to you, and it's in this very first chapter, is that the, oh, I must have done that last week, <laughs> is that the entire book, from 1 to 22, I, I think this is all meant to be understood as a letter, a very special kind of letter, but a letter. And it's a letter to all the churches, not, not just parts of the book. Because chapters 2 and 3 have seven different letters to seven different churches. But the book starts as if it's a letter. So if, if you can see here, we'll just jump down to verse 4. And it says in verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia... And then he starts his greeting to them. Just, I mean, there's a little introduction, but then verse 4 and on talks about, like, who he's talking to. I'm John, and I'm writing to you. And he doesn't say, I'm just going to write, just read the first seven chapters, and then the rest, you know, are going to be related to something else. He starts with a mention to them. This is to the seven churches, this whole thing. And then if we jump to the very end, uh, chapter 22... And starting from, well, 
We'll go to verse 8. As he's concluding the, the whole book, we'll read a good chunk here. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, presumably the whole book of Revelation. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. And he said, don't do that. Right? I'm just a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. That's a neat, when we get to that, it be funny to think about that a little bit. But um, then he says, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those, he goes through all these series of statements uh, then he says at the end, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. So he starts with mentioning, I am writing to you, I am John, to the churches. And he ends saying, you know, that's, I'm writing to the churches. So I, I, I think that might be a good way to move forward in thinking this is a letter to these seven churches. That's about as simple as we can get. It's not a regular letter by any means, right? That's going to be the difficulty, but it, it is simply a letter. It is not a, a guidebook to future events. It doesn't, it doesn't portray itself that way. It doesn't say, hey, if you look at this, you will know what's going to happen next. You will know secrets, you know, that no one else will know about uh, people and time periods. It's, it's not anything like that. It doesn't reveal itself that way. There's all kinds of things in it, but the gist of it is it's still a letter to churches in the first century. I think that's important just to remember. It's still supposed to do, still is supposed to be relative to them. And that's what we want to try to always come back to as we read all these confusing things is think, okay, this has to somehow be understandable to them to some degree. So we'll, we'll start with that. And then the, it's a letter. And what leaves us kind of feeling outside of any letter is that we're 2000 years removed from that time period. Right, we we don't know what what exactly is happening with John. He's on an island. He's presumably being punished for his faith, and we we know some of the seven churches that he that he mentions, uh, but we don't know every single situation in there. We don't know the, all the leaders' names. We don't know how the churches were planted or started. How much did the Apostle Paul was he involved in the starting of those churches? We don't know a whole lot. So whenever you're that much out of the loop, you you feel a little distant. Right, so we have to. We're going to experience that as we read the book. We're feeling like, wait, what is he, what is he talking about with these letters? Why does he address them so strongly at times? And then what we're going to see is that John writes, and he presumes that whoever is reading this and following it later is going to understand some of the images that he just picks up out of nowhere. He's not going to explain where they come from. He's not going to tell you, hey, by the way, I'm mentioning this, and it's found over here. He's just going to start talking, and here's the big kicker. It's as if you know the Old Testament pretty well. That's what he's assuming. That whoever's reading this is familiar with the Old Testament. So there's going to be a lot of, maybe he, maybe there's a lot of Jews that he was writing to who became Christians, and that there would have been a knowledge of the Old Testament. Let me give you two examples really, really quick from the first couple of chapters. So in chapter 2, verse 14, one of the letters to um, the church, this one to the church in Pergamum, this is the third letter. But he, he just says almost very like nonchalantly in verse 14, I have 
a few things. Sorry, it's not up here. We'll we'll get to those when we need to. I have a few things against you, and you have some there in Pergamum who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak how to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. If you're reading that, you're going, okay, who is this a guy that lived in the first century? <coughs> no, this is like close to a thousand years <clears throat> before this. Balaam didn't exist anymore. He wasn't really talked about in the first century at all. Balak, one of the rulers there, is, does, isn't, hasn't been alive for a thousand years. So his teaching, the teaching of Balaam, from all that we know, there wasn't any teaching of Balaam literally happening in the first century. There wasn't a teaching of Balaam. But as John writes this letter, Jesus speaking, he just says the teaching of Balaam. And he's assuming that, that these people would know the story of Balaam and Balak and what happened and what that might mean. You see how he, there's this huge gap? He just says Balaam. You're holding to the teaching of Balaam. He doesn't really mean the teaching of Balaam in the sense that they're literally been repeating for thousands of years Balaam's teaching and they're just passing it on like we do with Jesus. He's not, he does not mean that. As far as we know, that did not take place throughout the centuries. His te- this, this, God, this prophet's teachings did not go and go and go and go and go. It's just literally the moral of the lesson. So if you know the moral of the lesson that uh, Balaam, for money, he compromised. Balaam was a false, proce- false prophet, excuse me, and uh, you know, the story on the donkey with Balaam and the donkey and numbers. And the idea was that God had told him, you know, like, you shouldn't do this. And he's like, oh, okay. But then he was offered more like money and offered more stuff. And then he decided to go and offer up a prophecy to this, the king of, I believe, Moab. And uh, the lesson there was that he compromised with God himself because he obtained something good by disobeying God. So part, part of the idea there is that there is this teaching of compromising with God, that it's okay to compromise to make your life a little bit easier. And so he, he assumes that you know the story, right? As you, you know the entire Bible. That's the difficulty of Revelation, is that, is that there's so many pieces from the Old Testament that John is reaching back into. I like to think of it like this deep pool of all these ideas, and he reaches back in there, and then he, like, he, he paints a whole new picture with all these ideas. And it takes us some time to reach back and go, okay, what, what is this? What is this part? So that the very next letter, <clears throat> he's going to mention somebody that we have been studying in verse 20. He talks to the church in Thyatira. I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality. Jezebel was alive during Elijah's time. She did not exist during the first century nor was anybody following her teaching in specific, right? Could he be referencing a woman that was kind of like Jezebel? Yes, but you'd have to know the story. And we, we kind of go this because we, we've been listening to a series on Elijah and Ahab and his wife Jezebel and how she's kind of been moving him along in the direction of idolatry and the worship of a false god. You get the, you get the feel of this more because you know the story. But John doesn't say, hey, remember back then during the Israelite uh, kingdom? Remember a couple hundred years ago, guys, when Jezebel was around and she seduced Ahab and then idolatry spread through all the nation of Israel? He doesn't say any of that. He just expects you to, to kind of be familiar with that story for you to understand what he's saying. So that, that's a little bit of my point. That makes this hard. 
because there are so many things like this in the book, images, ideas that come from different places in the Old Testament. And if you've never seen them before, uh, you might either gloss over it or you might misunderstand, right? We might look at this and go, oh, there was a woman named Jezebel who was teaching this stuff there. But if you know the story, you know that he's not talking about a woman during that time frame called Jezebel doing that. He's referencing the past, just like he did with Balaam. Right, so this happens over and over and over again in the book. Does that, does that make sense? Does that concept make sense? I'm going to give you another one here to see if this jolts a little bit more to really get to what I'm saying. These parts were kind of harmless. But here, here is an, an interesting one. So jump over to Revelation 7. Let's read a, a section here that I think oftentimes is, is an example of how we can kind of get confused if we're not careful. Revelation 7. You ready? We're just dabbing our foot into one part of the book. <clears throat> After this, I saw four angels, and they were standing at the four corners of the earth. Of this earth, this circle still. It just, I was just going to say the flat earth. Yeah, it's a <laughs> here's the proof. It's a figure of speech. So holding back the four winds and that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. And then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of this living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea. So these angels who were, I guess, bad, not bad, but they can do bad things. Uh, and the angel said in verse 3, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So we read something like that, and we can go, oh, that's interesting. So they're presumably going to go, and they're going to seal a specific number. The number comes a little bit later. But what I wanted you to just think about is like, okay, that is something. That's an interesting vision. What, what is this? What do we do with that? What, is, what could he be referencing? And without any other help, you would go, yeah, he's talking about sealing people on their foreheads so that the angels would know what not to hurt. So what's interesting about this is that this isn't the first time something like this comes up in the Bible. This is going to be an example of there is precedence for something like this in the Old Testament. Are, we, are you familiar at all with where this might be coming from? Well, okay, that's very similar. But the, the uh, children of Israel coming out of Egypt and that was yes. a snake when they, I mean, that put a mark on the doorpost. Yeah. In essence, it, it was Okay, that's a great, that's a great uh, observation. There is something in the theme, anyway, of yeah. a seal of protection, a visible symbol that an angel who is going to bring destruction would go and, oh, not this one. So that, that would be, in terms of the concept, that is not a, sorry, that's my screensaver. I was telling them it's like my backyard right there in Sellersville. But uh, that is an example of the concept. But there's even something exactly like this, sealing on the foreheads with a seal to protect from harm. So, uh, John, in the book of Revelation, often picks from the prophet Ezekiel lots of things that Ezekiel said, images that he used. It's, it's all over the book. And this is one of them. So if you jump to Ezekiel chapter 9. I don't know if any of your Bibles have that little cross-reference in there. Sorry, I went totally wrong place in my Bible. Ezekiel chapter 9. Ezekiel is also full of 
very interesting ideas and images. A lot of people think that John modeled the book of Revelation itself off of the book of Ezekiel. At Ezekiel chapter 9, and so let, let me situate this for you. In Ezekiel 9, he's going to get a vision. What he's seeing is a vision that symbolizes God's judgment. And so this is not going to occur literally as we read it. So Ezekiel chapter 9, and this is part of God showing Ezekiel, no, I have to judge the people. Because Ezekiel was, he went with the rest of the exiles and during the judgment, but many stayed behind. And there were rumors saying, wait a second, there's still people back there. Were they the ones that, were we supposed to all remain back there and stay faithful? And so part of what God is telling Ezekiel is, no, you stay where you are in Babylon. I'm going to take care of you here. The ones who are remaining back there, they're disobeying me. And so this is part of God revealing his judgment against some of the leadership back there. So verse, we'll start with verse 3. <clears throat> of Ezekiel 9. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. <clears throat> so God is leaving his temple. This is the, this is the vision that Ezekiel is receiving, that God is leaving his people over there. He's abandoning them in a sense. They're so disobedient. He called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. So in his vision, there is this angel, human-like figure that God commands to go seal those who are in mourning over the apostasy of Israel. So he wants to protect those who are his, who are still obedient to him. And to the others, he said in my hearing, this is verse 5, pass through the city after him and strike. Your eye shall not spare, and you shall show no pity or mercy. Kill old men, young men, maidens, little children, women, but touch no one on whom is the mark, and begin in my sanctuary. So, the, and then the angel goes and he does that in the vision. This didn't happen literally like this. This is just a vision that Ezekiel received of God saying, I know exactly whom are mine and those who are disobeying me, and I'm going to treat them accordingly. That's, that, that's the gist of this vision. It ends up playing out in the sense of God bringing a foreign empire in and uh, kind of like beating them up a bit and exiling them, that the ones who had been left behind in, in a sort of way. So the vision in Ezekiel is symbolic of God being able to seal those who are his and protect them from his own judgment and then to deal with those who are being disobedient. When it's so confusing, right? When corruption runs deep, God is telling Ezekiel, I can handle this. I know who is who, and I will protect those who are mine, and I'm going to deal with the wicked in my own time and in my own way. So when we get to the book of Revelation, there are many images from Ezekiel, and this is one of them, right? And this is one scene when you go, oh, John might not be telling us that he's going to see that there will be people with a mark on their foreheads. He might be actually referencing Ezekiel's story, just like he did with Balaam and just like he did with Jezebel and, and many others. He might be referencing a symbol from the Old Testament and giving it some added new meaning. You, do you see how that could be? That could add a, a wrinkle here to, to the way that we read Revelation? 
that there might be many images that John is actually going, giving a nod to, very subtly, right? He doesn't explicitly tell you where this comes from. He doesn't tell you, I'm, I'm reading numbers right now, and this is just like Balaam. He doesn't say that. He just mentions Balaam and Jezebel. And he's going to do this over and over and over again to so many of the images that you see in the book of Revelation. Let me pause there and see if there's a, do we, <clears throat> any question about that? Any thought or comment? I need to clarify that again. That's a very different proposal for how we read Revelation. Instead of completely at face value, it's going to mean that we have to think a little bit, take, I think, a little bit more time, and become more familiar with the rest of the Bible. It's, not, it's, not, it's a difficult task. It's not an impossible task. It just means that there's a lot out there. Right? And we, you can see how easy it would be to just miss, under, miss, just miss that and, and run right by it. You're going to say something? It's really grateful that we have someone like you <laughs> who has so much familiarity with Scripture that you could, because my mind went the same as yours to Dennis, too, and we are about to hand over. But when you brought it up the way you did in congruency to um, the reference of Balaam and the reference of Jezebel, that to me is a peaceful level of um, the continuity of God regardless of where man is in our actions or behaviors towards him, God has one purpose, and that is redeeming a people unto himself. And that just speaks of the continuity. And one thing that, like, it, it might not be um, accurate, <laughs> but I like the fact that it's a seal on the head because our, our minds are really our rudder where our motivation is, guides our steps, guides our actions, guides our decisions. And <clears throat> I just feel like that's so significant, like that that's what God's targeting, is the heart of who we are. Like we say, our heart is here, but really, it's it's in our, it's birthed in our thoughts. It's, yeah, it's where we're thinking, yeah. combined with our feelings, it's it's not just the beating organ I, exactly. of the heart. Yeah. And I just think that that's kind of significant the usage of um, the marking on the head because it's like, I see your thoughts, you are mine. I see your thoughts, you are not. I like, do you know what I mean? Like, it's just like you get right to the heart of who you are. And that would be the same for Adam and Eve to the very last people <laughs> um, with aspect and change. Yeah. <clears throat> well, hopefully we're going in the right direction. Can't guarantee you that I'm going to be able to take you we're not going to make huge mistakes, but this is this is just a proposal, right? To think, to think this way. To, maybe there's more here to the book, and I, <clears throat> I do think the more that we see it, the more evidence you see of that happening, the more sense it would make for John to be talking about the Old Testament than to be just simply giving back to us a vision he sees, and it just literally means at face value what we're reading. So that and so that really is without me saying it uh, very directly before, but to just say it now, that's really. Really simplifying it, <clears throat> these are two very distinct ways of reading the book. One is face value, everything you see is exactly what it is, it's literal. And then what I am proposing, I think it's more subtle, that there are some things that are face value that John sees, but he also writes, I would say for the most of this letter, there are all these images and symbols and ideas. So it's a symbolic reading versus more of a, um, I don't want to say literal, because literally I think this is a symbol. 
right? That's how we're supposed to be reading it, as opposed to more just maybe face value kind of a reading. So <clears throat> there are many things like that in the book. So as we read it, we um, take time to reflect on it and see whether it makes sense of the book as a whole, right? So we won't, don't just at the moment just take my word for it, just, okay, yeah, we're going to try to read it this way and then see if it makes sense as we go. Yeah. It makes more sense to me that churches and you know different things but it was still very um, disconnected to me yeah and what you're referencing is a, almost a way of dividing the book where uh, mostly what we get for the church is, is in the first five chapters where John's writing to churches talking about some things about Jesus but then as soon as we get to six all the way through nine nineteen with the seven trumpets seals trumpets and bulls those are things regarding a future judgment and that's the bulk of the book and so this is usually what people get a lot fed to them about about revelation and then this part like you said is applying to a time period that a lot of people who read it this way don't believe anybody is going to be here for if you have a group of people who are yet to be born or who will be left behind they will be this will be relevant to them so and this could be true but it does create a scenario where it's a lot of things God wrote that's not for us to experience. Maybe just for us to understand what's going to happen, right? That would be um, for that or for people who are left behind to then read and understand what they're going through. As opposed to what I think is reading the whole book as one letter to all of the churches. And this was relevant for all of them. I think that makes more sense to me from the details that I see in the very way the book is written. And so we'll... We'll always be hitting back at that at some point. Is how does this make sense to the letters of the churches in Asia and how they represent kind of all of us? I, th I think it'll be neat to see more application for us today, more challenge for us today, more encouragement for us today. And so that, that will be how we'll try to approach the book. And the first thing that we'll come to is uh, a theme in the first letter. And so we will put verse 1 up here. We'll take a look at these first three verses. <clears throat> and I do have the NIV next to the ESV. Just the first, yeah, look, so the very first verse. I'm going to read from the column on the left. And the, <coughs> verse 1 just says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. And Claude pointed this out a few weeks ago, twice in this first paragraph. There is this sense of a nearness taking place soon. It's coming quickly. And in the, in the last chapter, if you read chapter 22, it, that's repeated several times. Jesus says, I'm coming quickly. These things are going to take place soon. I review to these things that are coming soon. There is this imminency question, which again, I think, really puts more weight on the idea that this letter was written to those churches 
and they had some relevance for them at their, at their point in history. But look at the very first few words, actually. So the ESV has the revelation of Jesus Christ, and the NIV has the revelation from. And which, which NIV is yours? Is your more, most recent one, the 84? you know? I got the Bible in <laughs> So that's probably the uh, 84, because this one's 2011 NIV. Okay. Yeah. 84, yep. And so that's the question we have in, um, in our Greek there. We just have these two words together, Revelation, Jesus. And the relationship between the two words is going to be determined by the context. And so both, both would be valid, right? Um, and there's another one that's valid. So there's of, from, or about. They, they can all be put in here. It really comes up to what does the sentence mean. And you can kind of get to all three of them in one way or another. <clears throat> this is a revelation that belongs to Jesus. It's one that is his uh, one that uh, he himself will be in charge of and then divide up. It can be one that just simply comes from him. He just happened to be the one who gave it. Or this last one, it could be a revelation about him. It could be all three together. They could, be, they could all be true at the same time. And so what's neat about that, to start your letter off that way, is you're saying a lot about what we're going to be reading in the vision, what we should be looking for. This is a revelation, not just from him. It's not just Jesus saying, hey, let me give you some insider information, an inside scoop. This is Jesus also saying, this is mine personally. This is about me. This is mostly about who I am, what I have done, so that you can see my role in history. I, I want you really to grasp that. that this is a book with all these three prepositions being part of the meaning of, from, and about. That's what we um, don't want to lose sight of, that, almost like an anchor to the book. G this does belong to him, and he's very picky. He doesn't want people adding stuff, removing stuff, playing with it, messing with it. And so it is his, it is his revelation, and it is also about him. It reveals us things about him that we might not see very clearly right now. And that's the first thing that comes up in this chapter is a revelation about him. So we'll read down into the, we'll read this little, these two paragraphs here. So this is verses four through, four through seven. I'm gonna read here on the left as the greeting begins. This is John writing, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. What a, that's a greeting and a half, right? So this first one, who is, who was, and who is to come, I guess in English that sounds okay, but it, it, the whole thing is just weird. It's not a name here. It's just this, who is that supposed to be? Right? If we just take a guess, I think we could probably all guess who that is. We sing songs about it. You know, we've made songs out of this verse that we know we're talking about God, talking about the Ancient One, God the Father. And this might be John playing with God's name, Yahweh, which just means to be, to exist. I am that I am. It could just be his way of parsing it out for us. 
It's a very creative thing. It's already a hint to you that what kind of letter this is going to be. It's going to be very creative. Um, the one who, wa who is, who was, and who is to come. And then the seven spirits. Here's another one where it's like, oh, we're supposed to know? Are we supposed to know what the seven spirits are? Well, are we supposed to be familiar with that? This, <clears throat> we're not going to do this this, <clears throat> this morning for sake of time, but this is another thing from the Old Testament, most likely from the book of Zechariah these seven spirits, which just seems to mean, seems to be just be talking about the Spirit of God, who just chose seven for the sake of completion, or there might be another reason that we'll see later on. But this seems to be the Trinity here, a very creative way of talking to us about the Trinity, the God the Father, and then the Spirit, and then from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn. It's like, oh, that's cool. And I thought this phrase was neat, the firstborn of the dead. Like, uh... That's pretty intense. Usually dead people don't bear children uh, at all, but it's the idea of the resurrected one. And he is the first among all the ones who have died to now become alive in a very new way. And he is the ruler of the kings on earth. This is like one of those ones too that, this last one, it's just kind of like, whoa, ruler of the kings on earth. Right, because John's writing the churches that are governed by the Roman Empire, by a self-proclaimed God-man. Right, they call themselves the Son of God. That's what Caesar is kind of known for, Augustus, the ruler on earth. So here is the beginning of the book, and Jesus is the one revealing himself to John. And here's the greeting, and in the greeting are these statements about Jesus alive from the dead and the one who actually rules the world. And we're going to see it as a very subtle hint here that uh, he's not talking about who will one day rule the world. Doesn't see, he doesn't seem to be saying the future ruler. There's a hint here that we'll see throughout the book is, no, the claim of Revelation is he is the one currently ruling the world. So, to him who loves us, has freed us by his own, uh, from our sins by his blood, made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. It's almost as if he mentioned Jesus and then he couldn't help himself. He needs to go on this little, got to give him credit, got to give him glory. And he starts by saying, to him who loves us. I thought that was a, that was a neat first thing to say. He, John couldn't get over that. He might be, you know, the one in the Gospel of John that's called the disciple whom Jesus loved. He references himself that way. There's something about love in John's gospel. It's there quite a bit. So this is one of the defining characteristics for John. He's the one who loves me. He's the ruler. He's the firstborn of the dead. Yes, but never forgetting Jesus just loves us. He, he felt the need to, to put that in there. Isn't that kind of a cool thing? He could have just said, you know, the one who freed us from our sins by his blood. But he adds the love component. I thought that was a, a pretty neat. I think it helps put you in a mindset. I mean, it could just say, from God to you. Yeah. But when he expounds on all that, it's like, oh, okay, this is from the I am, who always was and always will be. He's the ruler. Mm. He loves us. And it's like, keep these things in mind as you read this. Yeah. Type of thing. Yeah, it's very neat. Yes. Comes and from to to the resident, you know, yep. from yeah. the, the corporation. 
But if it's a letter from your, your dad, yeah. your father, or someone who loves you, you're excited to open that and read it and see what's there. Very, very good. Yep. It does add a lot. I have a, uh, you know, we have these two up here. Here's another small little difference. Was freed us, uh, our sins by his blood. And it says here, made us a kingdom. It's just a very general, just made us a kingdom. Simple, matter of fact, he saved us and he made us a kingdom. The NIV, this is one of my always question marks with the NIV, is that it's trying to be helpful. Sometimes it's too helpful and it takes you a little too far. It says here, made us to be a kingdom. And this to be can almost give you the sense that this is a future thing. Right? He made us to be this one day. It doesn't fully say that here, but it's just a little bit more addition than, the, than the, just the simple, he just made us a kingdom. Right? This could almost be in the past. This was something that's done. Kingdom, priests. The messenger reads it that way. Which way? He made us a kingdom. Yeah, just a little bit more straightforward. And uh, so there's a lot of um, priests to serve. It's, it's, it's a li little less clear as to when or what. Is this right now? Or is this going to be something he wants to do? This is the purpose of saving us, is to do this one day. Whereas it, what I think this is saying is more along this line, this is what he's done. He's freed us, and he has made us into a kingdom and priests. This is what he rescued Israel out of Israel uh, out of Egypt for it in Exodus 19 a kingdom of priests that's what he made them into and that's what we are being very subtly uh, spoken of as here the continuity Pam that you that you mentioned this is what Jesus has done right now we are in his kingdom that's the big difference I told you about when we understand the cross as bringing the kingdom of God as Jesus and John the Baptist mentioned, there's a really a significant difference between how we read little, little things like this. Is this going to be only a future kingdom all the way one day in the future? There will definitely be that. But is there anything in the present that we are living into? I think that that's here. Even in the little greeting, there's a little hint that we are part of this kingdom. So, not without any surprise, the passage that we've been talking about quite a bit is right here in verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Right, we read Daniel 7 and that vision. This is really the only place this could be referencing. He is coming with the clouds. It's just a small part of that. And then he says, And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. All the tribes of the earth will wail. This, is, this little verse here has, has two Old Testament verses combined together that don't normally go together, but that is, is just sitting right here in front of us. Part of Daniel 7, and then part of Zechariah chapter 12. Um, and both this verse is, is describing what Jesus has done, right? To him who loves us. This is, this is Jesus' work, his death, his, his person. And then there's just this, this verse here, 7. This is who he is. He is the one who comes on the clouds. And I mentioned and proposed that we, are, we should understand that as something that happened in the past. That Jesus' arrival before the Ancient of Days to receive authority to have the kingdom. That was the reference of Daniel 7. So I think this isn't saying, behold, he is coming looking towards the future and saying he one day is coming on the clouds. He is, 
But that doesn't seem to be what this verse is referencing. He's also the one who, even those who pierced him, will see him. This is something that John has said in his gospel has already happened. It happened on the cross when they pierced him. The Roman soldier was looking at him and saw it. And John says that fulfilled this, this prophecy, that those who pierced him, they will look on him and they will mourn. They will regret what they have done. It says here, all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. So this is a past reference. This is who Jesus is. He's the cloud rider, the one who receives authority from God to rule over the nations. And this is the one who, everyone who sees him and mourns for him having pierced, they participate with him. They get to be part of the kingdom of God. This is the one that the Old Testament spoke of. This, these first eight verses or so are just littered with Old Testament stuff, left, left and right for us, just getting all of our juices flowing, all of our, oh my goodness, that's who he is, this is who God is, oh, oh my goodness, it's, it's just lighting like a Christmas tree up. Amen, to cap it off, John says, the last, the last word of, the, of his thing, just amen, so true, that's what that word just means, true, I agree, amen to that, the one who loved us, the one who comes in the clouds, the one who has been pierced, and those who see him, they mourn. That's what we do when we see Jesus for who he is. We, we mourn our sin. We mourn what we've done. We mourn the piercing. That's just a declaration of truth right there. That's who he is. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who was and who is to come, who is and who and there is again, right? The Almighty. And when, you, when we see this part, I am the Alpha and Omega, my Bible doesn't have it as red, in red letters that Jesus says it, but this is the same word. If you jump to the end of the book, Jesus says the same thing at the end of the book, which is uh, really kind of neat. So go, go to chapter 22 again. If you can go there, <clears throat> verse 12 and 13. When he says, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me, <clears throat> seems to be Jesus speaking, even though the angel had just been talking in the previous verses, but this whole I am coming soon thing, that's what Jesus says throughout the book. I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to page one. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So it, it's, and he says it in verse 20 again. Surely I am coming soon. It's, uh, it's neat to see this throughout the book. Jesus speaking like God does. They're like kind of intertwined. They're like with the same, you know, it's kind of like what we believe. One, one being and three persons. It's kind of scattered throughout the book that way. But this to me looks more like it's next to this description of Jesus. So I, I take it as still Jesus talking here. The first and the last, the Almighty One. Mine does have big red. Okay, there you go. Then I see how it's interesting how things just change, how things yeah. are different. The more kind of like the more variety you have, it's, it can be more confusing, but the more interesting, especially for a book like this. So, <clears throat> Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is what we have for these first eight verses, and we probably shouldn't start going any further than that. We've got it's 9.50. Be good to probably pause here. 
Let me give you a couple of verses for you to look up. How about that for next Sunday? Um, then we're going to get into this vision, the second half of the chapter of Jesus. He's going to show something interesting about himself. So for, for sure, read that. But I would, what I would like to do is this, this wording here, again, the coming on the clouds, this coming language is taking place soon. I want you to see that throughout parts of the book of Revelation, it's repeated, but it's, it's very, um, how can I say it? it uh, what does this mean? I am coming with the clouds or I am coming soon, this arrival kind of language that we see in this chapter and throughout the book. I want you to look at a couple of different places. So if you can note this down, chapter 2, verse 5, and verse 16, chapter 3, verse 3, and verse 11. Uh, no, just verse 3 is probably good enough. Those three verses are references to Jesus talking to the church and saying, listen, if, if you don't change what you, you are doing right now, I'm going to come to you. He mentions his arrival to the church in interesting terms, like a, a special visit. Not just the end of time, not just my coming at the end when I arrive once and for all. He seems to talk about his coming in a couple different ways. One, his coming in the past, arrival in heaven. Next, his visit, visiting the church every once in a while. And then he, he talks about it as the end. So I wanted you to see these examples in the letters where it seems like he says, if you don't do this, then I'm going to come to you. And have us talk a little bit about, what, you know, this reference of Jesus' special visits that he makes to the people. And then we're going to look at in the Old Testament how that's something that God does quite often. He talks about visiting, visiting his people for good and for bad. He comes and he visits them. So that, that will be, we'll take up some of our time and we'll look at the second half too of the chapter of the vision about Jesus, which will be what we will repeat. This is a book about learning who Jesus is. It comes from him and it is about him. All right, I think we're in good time. We'll leave it at that, folks. So again, verse, chapter 2, verse 5, 16, and chapter 3, verse 3. Just note those, take a look at those, see if you can, what you think about these conditional comings, arrivals of Jesus, these visits, and then we'll look at some Old Testament references to that. All right, we did it.